0: On this episode, we taunt some owls and... The reason that they have remained largely unchanged through tens of millions of years of time is that they've never entirely dried out and they've never entirely burnt.
1: Ancient forests face new threats. This is the humidity podcast. Hi there. I'm Tim McDonald. Now, this podcast was supposed to be more focused on travel in Asia, but obviously, I timed everything like a total idiot. The plan is to go back to that sort of thing if we don't all end up dead or broke, but in the meantime, well, I have a few other stories. At the beginning of this year, before the world got sick, my life was consumed by another crisis, Australia's bushfires. Now, this is part one of a two-part series in which I visit this guy. Hello. That's Mark Graham. I've known Mark since the mid-2000s when I worked as a journalist in Coffs Harbour, which is about six hours' drive north of Sydney. He's an ecologist, very much a local, and he's been bitten by snakes a few times. There's just a touch of Bear grills about him. At the time of recording, part of his job was to help property owners assess their fire risks, so he does know a thing or two about fires. And this year, every assumption he had was thrown out the window. In much of Australia, fires are part of the natural cycle, but here there's a mix of eucalyptus and rainforest, and rainforest really isn't supposed to burn. Mark was worried that the tallest tree in the state, a giant tallowood near his property that had escaped fire for hundreds of years, was at risk. By the time I arrived, the rain had already swept in and saved it, but we decided to go and see it anyway. Mark owns a share in a sort of hippie commune which backs onto the New England National Park, which is where this huge tree is. Only a handful of people have ever clapped eyes on it. There's no public entrance, and even if there was, it's wild, inhospitable country. And you'll get a taste of just how inhospitable when things go wrong in the next episode. The night before we set off in search of this mega tree, we walked up the hill from Mark's place to see firsthand the effect the fires had had on the forest.
0: Very little of the eastern seaboard of New South Wales is currently unburnt. We're at the uh, the edge of one of the biggest green refuges right now. Yep. Where we we are within a couple of hundred metres now of hitting the edge of one of the more extensive firegrounds, the Andersons Creek fireground which burnt from uh, November 2019 until early January 2020.
1: Can you explain how that's a little bit different because my
0: understanding of this
1: region of the state is it's the area that's not supposed to burn it's the you know the green strip along the coast uh, that's always a little bit wet even during drought.
0: Uh, Is this something you expected for? Is this something you planned for? Absolutely not. So Mm -hmm. when I moved here 13 years ago, I made a number of decisions and and they were underpinned by certain assumptions. Mm -hmm. One of them was that water would be reliable, rainfall would be reliable, and in the last two or so years, rainfall has been significantly below average. Dorigo, um, 10 kilometres or so to our north, Last year, 2019, had about 50% of its average annual rainfall. And forests that have rarely, if ever, dried out Mm. became completely desiccated. Yeah. And where previously I'd made assumptions upon the lack of fire risk and the fact that these forests were unlikely to all burn out. Yeah. uh, We've experienced quite uh, extensive and in places quite severe fire. Okay. The eucalypt-dominated forests around us uh, have tolerances to fire and the more elevated ridges fire is a, a relatively um, uh, normal process. Okay. But we've been bearing witness to areas of really ancient rainforest, areas that are permanently wet, yep. drying out to the extent that pure rainforest areas have burnt right and that's been a a really big concern yep because they are meant to be wet and the biota the species within them um some of them simply have no tolerances to fire and in the last five or six months there have definitely been areas that have entirely dried out Mm -hmm. and areas that have burnt very extensively yeah, And that means that those ancient forests and the species that dwell within them have sustained quite... Um, they've taken quite a hit. Yep. They've been degraded by fire. And there's now a great risk that these forests that were previously in many areas uh, pristine and uh, had very clean streams within them and, and were weed-free, yep. there's now a risk that they will be invaded by weeds yep. because significant and substantial areas are burnt there's ash beds and exposed soil and that they're perfect conditions for exotic plants, for weeds to invade. Yeah. There's also a great risk that the water supply values, so these forests are, um, they supply substantial uh, numbers of, of a substantial proportion of Australia's population with drinking water yep. that through this process of uh, burning and drying out, that the reliable flows that um, that we've relied upon yep. uh, may not be available. Yeah. So we've just now come to the edge of the fireground. We've been walking for 200, maybe 300 metres. This fire was burning downslope, and I've actually got some footage taken just up on the corner here, where a brush-tailed possum. Was running round and round in circles, uh, freaked out by the the fire burning, and this was during the day. Um, It was quite a fairly sad scene.
1: And this this road that we're on is where it stopped.
0: Uh, It burnt either uh, actually it burnt down the uh, southern side here, okay, and on the western side uh, about 50 metres in front of us. But from just in front of us to the top of the mountain, all the forest had burnt. Um, It was an understory fire, so it wasn't crowning and, you know, incredibly dangerous to people and their properties. But particularly when it was burning down and into areas of pure rainforest, which we've documented lots of, that's when it starts to become a problem.
1: Coming up, we see if there's any nightlife in the forest.
2: Sometimes it can be immediate, sometimes it can take a while.
0: So I can probably show you up here a collapsed tree. Yep, so the big issue for the fauna around here, so we've got lots of threatened species, species like greater gliders and yellow-bellied gliders and powerful owls and sooty owls. They're all threatened species which require big tree hollows, so big holes in eucalypts. Yep. And what's happened with this fire is that things have been so dry that where previously the bases of these trees were damp enough to not have fire burn into them, so they're kind of protected by the moisture. Yep. Things have been so dry that these trees have burnt entirely through at the base, uh-huh. and in the case of a blackfoot it takes about 130 years to start to form hollow. Right. And we can't really replace that. We can possibly build some nesting boxes that some bats and small gliders might use, but those big Forest fauna species that I mentioned are simply unable to use, or there's no evidence that they use artificial structures. Right. So, all we can really do to ensure their survival, their future, is to retain hollows standing. And in front of us on the track here is a large thick leaved mahogany. It was about 40 meters tall.
1: Yeah, that looks like a big tree.
0: It's a big tree. Yeah. I was here when it came down. Yeah. And when these trees fall, um, frankly, it it hurts, because that's centuries of development of habitat gone. And that means that all the fauna that relies upon them loses the critical elements for their survival.
1: Mark had spent his summer in these woods fighting the fires, putting in containment lines to keep properties safe and hopefully to stop the most valuable forests from burning. It's gruelling work and it must have seemed endless. He had footage of this particular tree coming down. It looked spooky, like a brilliant shaft of light crackling away in the quiet pitch black of the forest. And then suddenly.
0: So you can see it's burnt quite hot. This was. Um, this particular fire ground was in the order of. A month to five weeks ago, yep. and we're witnessing only the most some of the most hardy species starting to come back. Yep, this blady grass, which is a, a real winner in fire, it's promoted by fire uh, along adjoining the track. There's bracken fern, which is another species that benefits from fire. Yep, and many of the rainforest species, like this rose maple and uh, there's actually some critically endangered scrub turpentines down in here. Yep. They've, um, the the standing trees, four to six metres have died and there are now some suckers coming up at the base. There are other species that are even more sensitive that fire just totally kills them. Yeah. And that's the case with these really special deep Gondwanan forests that are around us. Right,
1: they're just not equipped for not a fire.
0: They've got no physiological characteristics that can help them to survive fire. Mm. They can't sucker. They don't set seed after fire. They just die. Mm. And that's that's the fear. Yeah. Mm. The, the loss of species. Yeah. And so I
1: guess it, for the moment, it, it's a, it's a waiting game
0: because you won't know until five or six months how the forest is recovering. Yeah. Mm. I mean, we can see some signs of recovery. There's been... Yeah. yeah. Over 300 millimetres of rainfall, so over a foot of rainfall on this fire ground. So there have been lots of fire grounds nearby where there's been no rainfall for months after the fire. And then there's been nothing for months. So the fact that there has been moisture has actually helped these forests or the understory of these forests to start to regenerate and to recover. Just in front of us here is some diggings. So all the leaf litter around us was burnt out. It's bare soil practically as far as the eye can see yeah and these forests previously had large numbers of uh, superb lyrebirds, for example, a species that... Oh, really? Yeah bird, yeah, bird watchers come from around the world to see. Yeah. I suspect that in the middle of the track here where we are, where the fire didn't get to, it actually stopped at the edge of the track. Yeah. The only leaf litter in this remaining in this landscape, original leaf litter, is in the middle of the road. And I suspect that, that that's probably been done by a superb lyrebird because it's some of the only... Um, it's one of the only food sources around for them. Yeah. Um, BirdLife Australia just released a st- preliminary study indicating that a significant proportion of the superb lyrebird's habitat across its whole range, so everywhere where it occurs upon the planet, yeah. has burnt. Um, over a third of its habitat that's burnt. And, wow. Um, I mean, you can see just around us the only real leaf litter that's available now or that's around is where species that were scorched by the fire are starting to drop leaf litter, but every bit of organic matter that was previously up to even several centimetres depth has been removed by this fire, and and that's a function of the extreme dry that we'd had. Normally, in conditions that have historically prevailed... The leaf litter had some moisture in it yep. so the fire would often burn the surface but leave a damp layer and the big issue there is that when all the leaf litter layer burns off and we can see this uh, around us everywhere around us yep. it's all exposed mineral soil mm-hmm. and when you get heavy rainfall which you've had a lot in the of middle it. of summer yeah. we do get you get massive erosion Yep. And that's actually happened. And the Bellinger River below us, which has never sustained a catchment-wide pollution event yep. since these fires and the subsequent rainfall, yeah. has has been absolutely putrid. Yeah. And for weeks at a time it has smelt like fish emulsion because all the aquatic life has died it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's the smell of dead and dying yeah. aquatic well species. there's
1: been a fish kill down at Kempsey
0: and uh, on one of the other rivers you said? the Maclay river 200 right. kilometers of primary channel of the Maclay river mm. with hundreds of thousands of dead fish including um it seems as though the majority of those were Australian bass which are mm. a, a a princely sport fish um a right. beautiful native predator princely princely oh, well, they're, they're, they are they're sought after they're the, yeah. they're the creme de la creme of um, mm. freshwater fish with um, you know anglers uh, mostly catching and releasing but they uh, hundreds of thousands of fish have died in that catchment yeah. thankfully in the bellinger the the aquatic uh, the water bugs and the tadpoles and some of the fish have died but there have not been massive fish kills
1: So we went back to Mark's place to get something to eat and to prepare for the next day's big adventure. Mark's friend Pete Nock was also staying with us, or more specifically in his very well-equipped four-wheel drive, which was parked out the front. His focus is on bird life and he's doing a sort of census of bird species on private properties in New South Wales. He had all the equipment, a bunch of sturdy-looking boxes with microphones sticking out the side that can record hours of dead air and a few seconds of bird call, and a loud hailer with bird calls programmed into it so we could attempt to call out to the birds to see if they'd call back.
2: So what we're going to do tonight, we're going to call in a sooty owl, hopefully, so we're going to play their call and try to get them to mimic back or try to give them a response back. And what we're hoping to do is then record the interaction, try to record what they're going on about. So basically it's a territorial call, so sooty owls are found in this forest out here and then basically what we're trying to do is get them to come closer to us, make a response and call and basically show their, you know, stamp their territorial um, stance on this part of the world. So what we we'll are try to do is, yeah, we'll, we'll minimally play it and then we'll see if we get a response. So we play the call okay. and then wait a few minutes.
1: And this is what you do as part of your work?
2: Yeah, so this is a survey method. So this basically is for trying to determine what species are out there. So you can do call playback for owls. You can do it for koalas and various other species. Okay. So you can play those calls and you try to get a response. And that way that is a what you call a... Um, not a basically what's the term it's a um active way of trying to get species so the other thing is then trying to do passive recording so just putting recorders out and just seeing what animals call but this way we're trying to get an interaction with the whatever thing so tonight we're trying to get sooty owl that's the main species how do you like our chances well the last two times we've done it over the years out here we've definitely had them call up so Pretty good. I haven't heard them for a little while out this way, but they're definitely in this part of the world, so okay. there's there's a chance. There's definitely a chance. All right. and how loud is this this thing? It's got.
1: So it, it looks a bit like a, a loud hailer.
2: Yeah, it's just a little loud hailer, and basically it's got a series of. It's it's actually a, a game recorder thing. So, but what I've done is stripped all those calls off and put all my own calls back onto the recorder. So I've I got. See. So I've got Sooty owl, masked owl, powerful owl, koala. Uh, bushstone curlew and all these other species on here so I right. can play those but
1: calls. But like maybe hunters would also use this to try and get
2: deer or something like that? Yeah, they would have when I got it. This, so this is actually made for the uh, American market. It's got like um, rabbit calls and coyote calls and all these other weird and wonderful things that we don't need here in Australia. So I've taken those calls off and I put the Australian version along. And it's easier to customise your own calls? Uh, absolutely, yes. And part of the thing with this other project I'm working on for owls is we're trying to record... Uh, Unique calls, the calls that haven't been um, picked up before, so interaction calls between another species of owl, barking owl. So that's what we're trying to do increase the library of calls associated with the species. So Mm -hmm. when we use these passive recorders where we put them out at a site and we leave them out there for up for a couple of months, um, we get all these range of calls. And what we're trying to do is trying to build that library around the interactions of these other species, and then we can use that to run over the data, use it as a training set to actually f- try to find those calls and other data sets. So yeah, it's all part and parcel of building up a, a repertoire of calls, basically. Right. Okay. Shall we give it a go? Fantastic. Yep. I need a bit of light just to get the call. Okay. Okay. Other like birds calling at the moment, still that's a fantail cuckoo calling over there just just on dark. So it's the mm.
1: is it responding or is it just calling on its own? There was
2: that's calling on its own, but there was another bird just calling over here that actually was a bit of a warning call. As soon as the sooty owl call played, it responded immediately to that call. So that was like a, a warning call. It's like yeah. basically freaked out that there was an owl close by, right?
1: right. And, and so, what are owls, the sooty owls, eat?
2: So sooty owls will eat a range of arboreal mammals. Mammals. So in Australia, um, that means sugar gliders, squirrel gliders. Um, I even saw a photo the other day of a, a picture of a sooty owl that had taken a, a um, brush turkey chick. So also some uh, birds, probably owl at night jars, things like that, but mainly, yeah, night ma- mammals, so um, gliders and things like that. Yeah. And the sooty owl in particular is more associated to wetter forests, rainforests, um, tall, wet forests of um, eucalypt forests. Mm-hmm. How long does it usually take to get a ping back? Sometimes it can be immediate, sometimes it can take a while. Some of these, if they're close by, I mean, it depends. If, um, if they're in the immediate vicinity, you might get an immediate response, but these calls and the owls have such good hearing that they can be many kilometers away and mm. may take a while before they come in and, and to even respond. So we're just at the tail end of summer. Obviously, um, we're generally out of the breeding cycle. So that's usually easier to get a response when they're in that breeding frame of mind. Um, because they're obviously looking for mates and they're interacting at that level. So it'll be interesting to see, obviously it's been a pretty torrid time in Australia for fires and things, but there is a bit of a difference. We've had some rain and some species are actually starting to go into a sort of a a second breeding cycle. They they basically miss the first cycle with the Mm -hmm. early spring, dry spring, and some species are now deciding to breed where they didn't breed earlier in the season. So we give it a rest, and then we just um, wait and listen and see what we get.
1: Uh, So how much time do you spend out doing this sort of thing?
2: Uh, At the moment, infrequently, but Mm. the thing with... We're doing a lot of this passive recording, so putting out those, what I showed you before, those song meters, those acoustic recorders. So they're doing a lot of the work for us now, whereas previously we would have had to spend much more time out in the field doing a lot of this at an individual site. right. So now with these song meters, so we can put these recorders out, acoustic wildlife monitoring recorders, put them out in the field, yeah. and they can record for us literally every night of the of the week, months in advance, like over months, mm-hmm. and then we download the data and, and process it that way. So if that is the new, that's what we're stepping into now, all these different types of technology around recording. Um, so that's where we can basically have ears in the field over many many sites for yeah literally every night of the year if we need to
1: yeah and and an absolutely huge amount of audio by the end of it i imagine
2: uh terabytes of data so that's what we're processing at the moment literally every two months i get approximately yeah about one to two terabytes of sound data that i have to process and then whittle it down to pull out basically what we're after is interesting species. We're our project around barking owl, mm-hmm. but we're after also the, a lot of the other forest owls but because we're working with private property owners we're actually then rec- well that's the um, fantail cuckoo calling but um, we're working with private property owners so we're trying to record and, and label all the interesting species, all the threatened species that might be found on someone's property or that we've heard so that could include Yes, barking owl, powerful owl, mast owl, mm-hmm. sooty owl, what we're trying to record tonight. Um, also koalas, um, bushstone curlew, which is another type of ground-dwelling bird, but they call mostly through the night. So, mm-hmm. And then squirrel gliders and things like that, So the threatened species that um, yeah can be found in all the different types of tall forests that we're surveying in. But we were just listening for. Then was the owl at nightjar. We just missed the call and didn't quite get it on tape. Yeah. But, but the owl at nightjar is a, just a night bird. But it has quite a large gape, a large mouth, and it has these little whiskery feathers around its its mouth. And it mm-hmm. catches. It has very large eyes, very large mouth for the size of the bird. It's a tiny little bird but it basically catches uh, moths and insects on the fly, so it uses those whiskers to help it find those uh, insects while it's flying around at night.
1: Yeah.
2: And many people wouldn't have seen that bird, but it's actually probably one of the most common night calls in Australia. Like, okay. all over Australia they're found, but not many people would have seen them. Yeah. But they're a nocturnal species. They, they actually get into hollows in trees. Um, but yeah, very occasionally you might see them see them during the daytime, but nocturnal species basically. Yeah. And it's gone quiet. <laughs> yeah. Ah oh, well. And that is wildlife recording <laughs> in the field. hit
1: <laughs> and miss. Yeah. Some days you get everything, and some days nothing. Some days nothing. Owls are such recalcitrants. Probably wise. So the next morning we set out to find this huge tree, and I really get myself into a spot of bother. Ah, 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 Come down quick So listen in to the next episode. thanks to mark graham and pete knock you've been listening to the humidity podcast we're on all the major platforms so please like and subscribe search the humidity on facebook or find us on instagram or twitter at the underscore humidity find us on patreon if you'd like to sling some cash at us the website is thehumidity.sg. we'll be back soon with more i promise so please listen out